I'm going to return to the paralytic today, as possibly you can see in light of the title of the message today. I'm going to start in verse 5 of that narrative, chapter 2, verse 5. Then there are a few other passages that I just want in Mark that I want to bring to your attention according in terms of the theme of the Son of Man. So Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, through 12, excuse me. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. I would like you to turn over and just look at one verse in chapter 8, verse 31. Chapter 8, verse Many scholars of the book of Mark say this verse begins the second part of Mark's gospel. 8.31 And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Then if you would turn over to chapter 10, just one more brief section. Chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. Chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, he's talking here about the disciples, you know that those who were considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. 
We ask, O Lord, that we would see and place ourselves in the position of listening and hearing about Jesus' own revelation of himself as the Son of Man. What that means, what that means for us, even in our Christian walk each day, may our hearts be encouraged by his life, and may we be encouraged by the Spirit of Christ that lives within us. In Christ's name, amen. If you love a story of drama, you do not need to look any further than the story of Jesus and the paralytic. Jesus is preaching in a house. The house is so crowded that no one, not another person, can fit in the house. They are there to hear Jesus preach about the gospel of faith and repentance that is centered in him. Some probably have returned after hearing him the first time he came to Capernaum. Eyes are fastened upon him. Ears are listening to every word. Many people are also there because this Jesus from Nazareth has already captured their attention because of his power to heal diseases and to cast out demons. But not all who are present have a friendly outlook. Tension does exist in the house. An issue of authority within the religious Jewish world has emerged. At Christ's first visit to Capernaum, the authority of his preaching became noticeable right away. His teaching surpassed the authority of the scribes. Verse 22 of the first chapter. And then when he cast out the demon in a man, his authority was even more on display. When the scribes noticed Jesus' authority being perceived as exceeding their own authority, they were not pleased. After all, the scribes occupied the central authoritative religious position in the Jewish world. The tension is now set for Christ's second visit to Capernaum, which we are reading about in chapter 2. Indeed, the scribes have their seat listening to Jesus, verse 6 of our text this morning. Oh, does Jesus' authority really, does it really exceed the authority of the scribes? Does it? Tension and suspense is definitely present in the house as Christ preaches. 
then something unexpected occurs. The roof <laughs> becomes unroofed. And four men lower a paralytic down into Jesus' presence. Interestingly, Mark makes no comment about the commotion on the roof that had must have caused bringing that roof off and lowering the purse situation. Doesn't mention anything about the commotion. You can imagine <laughs> that's going on. Why? Because Mark, you see, is interested in the personal dynamics in this story. Jesus, the four men, the paralytic, and the scribes. When Jesus sees the faith of the five men, the drama really comes to a head. Son, your sins are forgiven. Up until this point, Mark has not even told us that the scribes are present. Notice that in the text. They are brought into the narrative at this exact point because Jesus has now definitely shown that his authority is more superior than the scribes. Jesus has gone beyond the authority he demonstrated during his first Capernaum visit. He is exercising authority that only God has the power to do. And the scribes know this. Their hearts mount their defense, their power, their prestige, an authoritative position must be held in the Jewish religious world. Thus the tension in the story mounts. Jesus is either a blasphemer as the scribes view him, or Jesus is God. Or in the specific words of Jesus' own revelation in the text, he is the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Verse 10. Or to put it in the context of authority, is Jesus' authority based upon a blasphemer, as the scribes propose? Or is Jesus' authority based on the coming and the appearance of the Son of Man. It is because of this interesting title, which Jesus applies to himself, the Son of Man, that we return to the paralytic narrative in chapter 2 this morning. It is the first appearance of this title in Mark's Gospel. It plays an interesting role in his gospel in understanding exactly who the person of Jesus is. I finished last week's message on the following note, knowing that I wanted to return to the title Son of Man this week. 
I closed with these comments. In our story, the new and unprecedented element in the history of redemption is not the forgiveness, is not that forgiveness is being announced about the coming Messiah by Old Testament prophets, but that forgiveness of sin is now being accomplished. On earth, the text says, Don't miss that little phrase. On earth, in Jesus, verse 10. In Jesus' dramatic dialogue with the scribes, he confronts them with the ultimate question with respect to what they have witnessed. You remember the question? We saw it again this morning in verse 9. Which is easier to say? To the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, your rise, take up your bed and walk. Jesus proceeds to heal both. In fact, he leads with this statement so that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth. To forgive sins, then he proceeds to heal the paralytic, commanding him to rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Both the spiritual and physical are equally within the domain of Jesus' authority and power. Forgiveness of sins is being accomplished on earth that will take that person all the way into eternity as a whole redeemed person. Herein Jesus challenges the scribes that he is the son of man who has the authority to forgive sins. As we noted, this is the first time that Jesus declares himself to be the son of man in Mark's gospel. Mark opens the gospel with the declaration that Jesus, the Savior of his people, is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Very first verse of this gospel. We know that his identity as the Son of the Father is placed upon him at his baptism. Verse 11 of the first chapter. But we may be somewhat surprised to read and learn that Christ's first reference to himself in Mark's gospel is not a title that we often speak about concerning our Savior, Christ, Messiah, Son of God, Lord. Rather, the Son of Man is referenced in the context of him declaring that he has an authority superior to the scribes, especially with respect to forgiving sin and healing the physical disabilities upon the human body. So what's going on here? 
What's going on here? He uses it here in addressing the scribes. Then he will use it as he addresses the hostility from the Pharisees. If you look down in that text in chapter 2 to verse 28. To verse 28. In that case his reference is to the fact that he has superior authority to the Pharisees. As he combines his title as son of man to being the Lord of the Sabbath. Our focus on that is around the corner in weeks to come. After addressing the Pharisees, the title Son of Man does not appear until the opening of what many scholars note as part two of Mark's gospel in chapter 831. That's why I read that passage for you this morning. A verse that is very significant concerning the purpose and the destiny of the Son of Man coming into the world. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. After chapter 831, the title, the Son of Man, becomes a central place in Mark's gospel, appearing 12 times. So once again, what is going on with the title, Son of Man, in Mark's gospel? Are you ready? (laughs) Are you ready in your own life to embrace the Son of Man in a hostile environment against your Savior? That's the question to the church. First note. That when Jesus refers himself as the Son of Man, he places no aura of secrecy around this revelation of himself. Remember, in other incidences we've already read in chapter 1, he talks about don't be telling people. Ah, no secrecy about this one, about the title of the Son of Man. Second, Jesus uses the title of the Son of Man in the context, here's the key. Here's the key this morning. Everybody tuned in. The Son of Man, Jesus uses that title in the context of opposition. Chapter 210 describes 228. The Pharisees. 831. The path to the cross. Suffering at the hands of the Jewish leadership and Gentiles to be killed. You see my point. Will you confess That Jesus is the Son of Man in your life. 
in terms of the opposition that comes to you for your love for Jesus in the context of the world. Indeed, in the second part of the gospel, Jesus teaches the disciples the cost of discipleship with respect to his enemies is his unjust suffering and death. And even one disciple, Judas, will throw away the cost of discipleship, aligning himself with the enemies of the Son of Man in chapter 14. Jesus is very clear how discipleship is to be exercised in contrast to the authority of the rulers of the Gentiles as well as those who rule among the Jews. It will be living the pattern of the Son of Man in the same manner Jesus lived in response to his enemies. If you want to understand what it means to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, you must be a servant. A servant. A slave of all. Chapter 10, verse 44. Wait a second. Wait a second. The Son of Man is telling me, the believer, that the way to counter the earthly rulers who are enemies of the gospel, who oppress the church, to be a servant, a slave of all? Are we not supposed to counter the enemies of Jesus with a theocratic Christian government. Isn't that what we're called to do? Are we not to rebel against the rule of tyranny and injustice everywhere it appears? Isn't that the reason we sing onward Christian soldiers? I ask you to please read the words of that hymn. It corresponds with the message this morning, it's for that purpose I had us sing it. If that is your understanding of Christ and the task of the Christian life, then you need to really focus upon and meditate upon the words of Jesus to his disciples, especially the passage we read in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. You see, the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, he says, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does it mean for me to serve as a slave of the Son of Man? What does that look like in my own personal life? 
It means that you surrender your life to be a servant, a slave to all. Although you cannot be a ransom for sin, that alone belongs only to our Christ. The Son of Man's point is that you are to live a life of self-sacrifice to others. Like the Son of Man, this may cause the rulers of this world to kill you. But you must understand, like the Son of Man, your life of self-sacrifice overcomes the rulers and powers in this world. <laughs> you think I don't know what you're thinking right now? <laughs> With that statement? With what's before you from Jesus? How can this be when it seems that the authorities and rulers in the world are always winning? How are we winning by living the life of servanthood? Come on, get real. <laughs> enter, enter Daniel's prophecy. Daniel's prophecy. Entered Daniel's prophecy in comprehending the full scope of the revelation of Jesus as the Son of Man. Yes, as Jesus is moving to death as one who came to serve. The high priest asked him if he is the Messiah, to which Christ responds very quickly that he is. Chapter 14, verse 62. But don't miss also the second part of verse 62 in chapter 14 of Mark's gospel. At this very point, Christ immediately continues with the words that remind us of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. From the scribes witnessing the healed paralytic in chapter 2 to the high priest, the chief priests, elders and scribes placing Jesus unfairly before them. The scope of Daniel's prophecy with respect to the Son of Man is being revealed. The Son of Man who interacts with his enemies during his ministry and predicts his suffering on the cross at the hands of Jew and Gentile will come. He will come 
at the end of time in great power and glory as ju- and judge, vindicating his own innocence as he inaugurates the consummation of his kingdom. With this understanding of Jesus as the Son of Man, will you not echo this morning the words of the Apostle Paul who models for us the path of being a servant to the Son of Man, being content in every situation, Philippians 4.11, even to the position of being in prison for his faith because, because the final victorious power and authority of the Son of Man will come before every person who has ever lived at the consummation of the Son of Man's kingdom. Daniel prophesied this. And it's already begun. It's already started. The fulfillment of that prophecy has already started in the earthly ministry of Jesus. Now in terms of the Son of Man in Mark's narrative, you do not want to miss one more amazing connection with Daniel. Daniel has a vision of four kingdoms that oppose the final dominion of God's kingdom. Of course, there is a lot there as we read from that passage this morning. But I just want to make one fascinating connection. The four kingdoms are displayed in images of four beasts. A lion, a bear, a leopard, and a beast that is unnamed, but is described as terrifying, dreadful, strong with iron teeth. Chapter 7, verses 4 through 7 of Daniel. The beasts serve an important purpose. That is, the four kingdoms and their rule are pictured as being deficient Deficient of being human. Of being human. They lack basic humanness as they ascend with the spirit of hostility against God. Not so. Not so for the one in Daniel's vision that opposes these beasts. He alone is pictured as being human. He has the appearance of being a man. Daniel 7, verse 8 and 13. Now here's the fascinating connection between Daniel's vision and Mark's gospel. You don't want to miss this. 
Do you recall the unique narrative about Mark's edition of The Temptation? If you forget that, you may want to take a look at that. Chapter 1, just verses 12 and 13 about Christ's temptation in Mark's gospel. He mentions nothing about the actual conversation between Christ and Satan that is found in Matthew's gospel. Instead, Mark records that the Son of his heavenly Father was tempted by Satan and he was with the what? He was with who? The wild animals. The Greek word there also can mean beasts. Beasts. As Mark arraigns his narrative, he is pushing upon us the imagery of Daniel's vision being fulfilled. The baptized Son of Man is driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan and live among the wild animals, the beasts. He is there as a man with creatures that do not possess humanness. And Mark immediately, notice how the flow of the gospel goes. Immediately there in verses 14 and 15, he immediately goes into the announcement of Jesus Christ and the presence of the kingdom of God. The good news is come in God's Son. You are witnessing the beginning of how the authority and power of Jesus as the Son of Man is going to overcome any beastly authority and power. It starts out with the scribes that is hostile against Jesus as he makes as we make our way to the final consummation of the Son's kingdom. And where does Mark begin? With that inhumane authority and power against the Son of Man. Mark hits us with the story of the paralytic. Where Christ, where Jesus confronts the central core of fallen humanity's problem before its creator. That is humanity's need for spiritual reconciliation for their forgiveness of sin. That forgiveness of sin is now being accomplished. Where Where does 2.10 say? On earth. On earth. And the need for the effects of the fall upon the physical body to be reversed. Those who look for security in any power, dominion and authority 
that resembles a vicious beast will find the actions of the Son of Man as nonsense and meaningless. You tell me. You tell me. What leader in what nation that leads a nation in all the earth, including our, our, our own, what leader bows before the authority of Jesus Christ? The Son of Man. The whole world is hostile against Jesus. You shouldn't be surprised. You shouldn't be surprised. It's exactly what the scripture teaches. But for those who embrace and rest upon the Son of Man in his death, resurrection, and the hope of his final, ever eternal reign, like all the five men whose faith pressed them into the presence of Christ, all of us who live by faith will behold the Son of Man coming upon the clouds of heaven, who possesses an everlasting kingdom with an everlasting dominion that will never pass away or be destroyed. Is the prophecy in Daniel in terms of the Son of Man in Christ, is that in your heart this morning? Is it? Really examine. Satan and his beasts are no match against the power of Christ's servanthood to the cross and resurrection. And Satan and his beasts are no match for the powerful path of servanthood in Christ's church and in the lives of his people who li- whose lives are embraced by the Holy Spirit and Christ's death and resurrection. <laughs> they can't get rid of Jesus by crucifying They can't get rid of you by mocking you. Turning hostile to you. You're with Jesus forever and ever in terms of dominion and power. It is he who comes in the clouds of glory. So as Martin Luther has told us reflecting on that wonderful psalm, Psalm 46, he encourages you as a Christian 
Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body, they may kill. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's yours. That's yours. You're with the victorious Christ. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, help us to see the scope of the revelation within the title of our Savior, the Son of Man. Help us to be encouraged by this. We feel the onslaught of the enemies of Christ. As thou hast given us a faith to serve him. Yet let us make sure that we are sober minded. Are content enough as Paul tells us. That we know of the lasting, everlasting aspect of the kingdom of God forever and ever. Jesus is the one who has the authority, dominion, and power forever. And what a kingdom it is. A kingdom of forgiveness and love and grace poured out to his people. In Christ's name, amen.